You are listening to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. This episode is going to be based around critical care. We've got a couple of amazing guests and we've got a pretty packed podcast crew as well. So my name is Pramod. I'm an emergency staff specialist at Nepean and Westmead Hospital, and I've been um, one of the members of this Journal Club podcast for a little while, absent because of a baby, but back again with a vengeance, I think. This is Amanda. I'm one of the emergency advanced trainees at Westmead. Looking forward to this podcast immensely. I think we'll have a really good time today. I'm Mark Salter. I'm an emergency physician at Nepean and Westmead Hospitals and a clinical toxicologist at Poison Centre. I am Gladys Cabell. I'm a registered nurse that works in Westmead Emergency Department. I also teach some nursing students at Western Sydney University. I'm currently doing a PhD on um, fluid management in sepsis. Colleagues, thank you. I'm Alex Yartsev, random intensivist from Westmead ICU. And um, thank you for wheeling me in here on the Hannibal Lecter style trolley and unmuzzling me for this podcast. My name's Christian. I'm one of the ICU registrars here at Westmead and long-time listener to the podcast, but first-time contributor. Hi, guys. It's Samada. It's so nice to have you join us. Hi, guys. This is Shreyas, back for another month and very excited to see several months of nagging coming into fruition for this episode. Hi, I'm Maddie. I'm one of the provisional fellows from Westmead Hospital. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me and, yes, and nagging me persistently for a few months. Thanks, Shreyas. Hi, it's Caroline. I'm back for another month and excited to be here. So we're going to start with our optimum blood pressure in patients with shock after acute myocardial infarction and cardiac arrest by Amlut et al. I found this paper really interesting as an initial read. Yeah, thanks, Ramon. So just to sort of go through some of the basics of the paper. So it's as stated, optimum blood pressure in patients with shock after myocardial infarction and cardiac arrest, published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology back in 2020. Just going over the background of this paper, I think shock after acute myocardial infarction, the blood pressure support for these patients is sort of unclear. And while there's been a sort of debate from a physiological perspective about whether higher doses of vasopressors in these patients can be potentially poor for the patients being prorhythmogenic, or whether the improved diastolic hypotension with increased vasopressor support may in fact be better for patients longer term. So going into the nitty gritty of the paper a little bit more. So this is a patient level pooled analysis of post-cardiac erect patients with shock after acute myocardial infarction. And this was actually done based off the data collected for two other large studies completed in Europe. So that's the just specifically NeuroProtect, which was neuroprotective goal-directed hemodynamic optimization in post-cardiac erect patients, which was completed in Finland as a primary center, and ComaCare, which was carbon dioxide, oxygen, and mean arterial pressure management after cardiac arrest and resuscitation, which hasn't been published yet, but I just convened completed data collection based, I think, out of a couple of centers in Belgium. The methods of this study, as I stated, were a statistical analysis, but really the endpoints they were looking at were patients randomized to a mean arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury or a mean arterial pressure of 80 or 85 millimeters of mercury up to 100 millimeters of mercury during the first 36 hours after admission. The primary endpoint for this study was looking at the 72-hour high-sensitivity troponin T-curve, but it also had a number of other interesting endpoints as a secondary parameters, which I think will probably stimulate the most discussion. Looking at the physiology, in clinical practice, there's been this sort of debate between physicians about whether minimizing the use of ionotropes and vasopressors reduces 
myocardial oxygen consumption, myocardial infarct size, and the risk of the proarrhythmogenic nature of many of these agents. So there's been this push towards minimizing the use of inotropes and vasopressors, particularly in post-cardiac arrest patients. But there's also this other side of the coin where lower diastolic blood pressure reduces coronary perfusion and may actually increase infarct size. So with that, there's been this unclear level of what degree of pharmacological support and what blood pressure targets we should be aiming for. And I think that's reflected in most of the worldwide guidelines that are published on this, where vasopressor support is encouraged, but with a sort of undefined end target. So looking at the actual trial design itself, so Neuroprotect and Comcare looking together were both prospective multi-center randomized parallel group open-labeled, assessor-blinded, monitored, investigator-driven clinical trials um, with randomizing post-cardiac arrest patients between lower and higher arterial pressure targets amongst a number of other things that were done that we'll come to when discussing their methodology. Comacare specifically also looked at randomizing patients to a lower or higher high normal arterial carbon dioxide tensions with normoxia as a second part of their study. So I think looking, sort of coupling them both together rather than going through the nitty gritty of each, both used adult patients over the age of 18, resuscitated from out of hospital cardiac arrests of a presumed cardiac cause, unconscious at hospital presentation with sustained return of spontaneous circulation as inclusion criteria. Neuroprotect also included non-shockable rhythms with these, irrespective of their time to ROSC but Comacare only included shockable rhythms as part of their inclusion criteria. In terms of defining a myocardial infarction, they included ST segment elevation or non-STEMIs um, with identification of a clear culprit lesion and the presence of characteristic plaque disruption on coronary angio that had to be performed within two hours of admission. Their definition of shock, interestingly, was just the need for vasopressors to maintain the assigned mean arterial pressure target at any time point during the first 36 hours of presentation. So looking at the numbers in this trial, there was 235 patients randomized, of which essentially half had to be excluded. That ended up leaving 58 shock patients assigned to the higher mean arterial pressure and 62 shock patients assigned to the lower 65 target. In looking just at some of the things that they've done as part of the thing, this was done in a time of targeted temperature management, which I think we'll come to later in our discussion, but presents a reasonable confounding variable in this. Essentially, hemodynamic interventions were with vasopressors, predominantly norepinephrine, dibutamine, and fluid management, which were slightly differently guided in each of the two arms, but essentially similarly enough that I think we can can group them together for this. There was also in Neuroprotector focus on the mixed venous blood oxygen saturation uh, as well as a part of it. As said before, the primary endpoint was looking at area under the curve of a 72-hour high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T curve, and samples were retained at 24, 48, and 72 hours, and then otherwise at investigator-driven times. Secondary endpoints, which I think are probably the more interesting component of this, were nuanced atrial fibrillation, re-arrest, all-cause mortality, and cerebral performance or CPC score at 180 days. Neuroprotect, interestingly, also included some echocardiography findings of patients while on the vasopressors. Interestingly, I think as part of their statistical analysis, they've also talked about missing data from patients who died before 72 hours were inputted according to the worst case scenario, where the missing <laughs> value was replaced with the highest corresponding treatment group, which I think was a little bit of an interesting choice. 
going through the sort of baseline characteristics of the two groups, there was no significant difference. I think just interestingly, um, as has been seen in other European studies, the degree of bystander life support was pretty high, sort of 80, 70 to 80%. There's an obvious gap in the two between Comacare and Neuroprotect in terms of the shockable and non-shockable rhythms purely related to inclusion criteria. And then the time to ROSC of about 20 minutes um, with a standard deviation of 8 and 12 in Comacare and Neuroprotect respectively. Probably the only statistically significant difference in the baseline characteristics was a first ICU lactate uh, with Comacare having a lactate of 1.9 and Neuroprotect having a lactate of 2.9, which was statistically significant. In terms of angiographic findings, essentially all similar between the two groups, but of note, they had a significant number of TIMI 0 and TIMI 1 patients, but predominantly TIMI 0, about 50%, which I think as they come to talk about in their discussion is an important part of this. Then moving on to sort of the hemodynamic stuff, which is I think where the interesting part is, patients randomized to higher mean arterial pressure received significantly higher doses of norepinephrine as you'd expect, although the debutamine between the two groups wasn't significantly different. There was also just of note, six patients treated with mechanical cardiac support, intra-arterial balloon pumps and VA ECMO, although I think between the two groups essentially similar. Looking at the myocardial injury statistics, which is where the interest begins, area under the curve for the cardiac troponins was greater in the lower MAP group, statistically significantly greater. And in subgroup analysis, the overall treatment was mainly driven by STEMI patients with a subocclusion Timmy's grade zero or one in the left anterior descending or left main coronary artery, which is, I think, physiologically where we'd expect to see the best benefit of this sort of diastolic blood pressure augmentation. With that, the NeuroProtect trial, which also commented on echocardiographic findings, also noted that the mean left ventricular ejection fraction was higher in patients assigned to the mean arterial pressure group, although they do note in their discussion that this was done obviously on significant vasopressors and whether that was just a byproduct of the vasopressors or not, but I don't want to preclude the discussion too much with that. In terms of the arrhythmogenic risk, which is another thing I think that's interesting out of this is that the vasopressor support group in the higher mean arterial pressure group was not associated with an increased risk of new cardiac arrest or higher ratios of new onset atrial fibrillation. So I think that's probably one of the more important findings out of this in that there is that concern about higher arrhythmogenic risk was not borne out. In terms of outcome from looking at the neurological outcomes, so good neurological outcomes defined as a CPC of one or two was essentially the same between two groups, slightly higher in the higher mean arterial pressure group, but not statistically significant. And all-cause mortality was, again, essentially the same between between the two groups. But they did note that the major cause of death was post-anoxic encephalopathy with brain death or withdrawal of ICU support because of neurological futility, which is something, again, they just discuss in their discussion. I think you've raised some interesting points there. I think the first thing that I was disappointed in was the absence of a catchy acronym. Coma care was pretty good. Um, I was expecting something equally as awesome from this. So that was the first disappointment. Second thing was I found the use of an area under the curve as a bizarre primary outcome, especially when your secondary outcomes seem more patient orientated. You know, they always say, you know, to run, if you're having a good study, the outcomes should be patient orientated mm-hmm. outcomes. I sort of did a look into like peak troponin prognostic values and it's pretty not great. What do you think, Alex? Nobody anywhere ever targets their therapy to the troponin value, right? Like it's a risk stratification thing, isn't it? So there's no intensivist out there that's going to look at this trial and say, 
Perfect. I can now aim my vasopressors at this very precise thing and uh, I will track the troponin. And as it falls, I will experience a sense of well-being that I am doing something useful for the patient. You know, even as I am pumping what to my calculation appears to be a 0.25 mics per kilo per minute of noradrenaline, that's not a trivial dose. That's about 30 mils an hour at our standard dilution for a normal size patient, right? You stay on that for a couple of days and then your toes will begin to change their color and uh, your gut will begin to fall apart. Uh, so all of that is kind of disturbing. So to, to achieve this non-meaningful change is the thing that I would probably question the most. It is clever to use the area under the curve rather than the actual values though. So probably if you did get any meaning out of this, it will be from the area under the curve as opposed to, uh, for example, the peak troponin. Because what they're trying to identify here is that myocardial injury is prevented. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a net loss of troponin from yeah. the body, yeah. there's less. <laughs> That's right. Which yeah. is great because you want to yeah. hang on to that stuff, right? Yes, like it's a contractile protein. Right. Here it's important. Yeah, yeah, it's important. For me, the interesting bit was this study has come from other studies. So someone's trying to get a paper out of other people's work. And so primary input <clears> should be patient specific and it should be something that's actually going to be meaningful moving forward. And interestingly enough, there was nothing about echocardiography or MRI in terms of cardiac scent to determine function at 180 days. I'm glad they put something longer term in, in terms of brain function. Most people who survive cardiac arrest are just happy to be alive. So even if they're alive with a little bit of neuron dysfunction, yeah. they're, they're happy. For me, that was the, the big takeaway is that we've done a whole bunch of stuff for people. We've found no real difference. I think we've all intrinsically known that a map of 65 is probably just going to be okay. Yeah. Exactly right. So like the AHA actually used to recommend a map of 65. You young people won't remember. 2010 guidelines uh, said map of 65 is the appropriate map for a post-cardiac arrest patient. And we drew that ultimately for no specific reason. And they leave it as one of the unanswered questions in their statements now. They say this needs to be investigated further. And the main reason for that is that they've become confused by some observational data that's been published about patients following cardiac arrest who all seem to do better if their map is higher. So this is retrospective and prospective basically cohorts studies that uh, look at large populations of cardiac arrest patients. And the ones that have a higher MAP probably didn't have as much myocardial stunning, probably had a slightly better myocardium to begin with, are probably going to do better overall, probably didn't spend as long down. That's probably where that's coming from. Whereas the use of vasoactive agents is uniformly demonstrated to have some negative impact, which actually is really interesting. In this study, it wasn't, which I think is strange. Because that's a lot of noradrenaline, but noradrenaline is not a particularly potent proarrhythmogenic drug. And in fact, probably has a bit of an antiarrhythmic effect when it improves your diastolic coronary perfusion. Because the reason you have post-cardiac arrest arrhythmias is because there's some underperfused little myocyte somewhere that decides to be uh, an upstart uh, pacemaker and uh, creates some kind of arrhythmia in the ventricle. It's a bit surprising because other studies in really sick, critically ill patients, you know, multi-organ system failure, aiming for a higher MAP target to protect kidneys, aiming for a MAP of 85, also had really good uh, treatment separation, like this study, also had tons and tons of noradrenaline. And the risk of AF was approximately doubled in the, that group. So that's just something to look at. I just thought that stratifying it by use of this biomarker means that they're essentially doing something that they don't necessarily have control over in terms of stratification of the population. Look, I don't have any data for this, but I would imagine that a six foot six Tongan gentleman versus a five foot Thai lady, they're probably going to have very different sized hearts. And so when they have the same equivalent infarct, one of them is probably going to release a whole lot more troponin than the other. And so they will seem to have 
had a much bigger infarct when proportionally it may have actually been the same. There's nothing in either of these papers in terms of demographic, in terms of ethnicity, yeah. and it's a mishmash of two completely different populations. So, Absolutely. Well, you can you can probably make also the argument that they picked the wrong group in whom to find the treatment effect, right? Because these guys are all they're like ninety percent of these people were Timmy three flow by the end of the PCI, right? So they're all got fully revascularized. This is what what can you really achieve by pushing more blood into an already well uh, filled coronary artery? So I reckon you should enroll the people who did not get PCI or in whom PCI was unsuccessful in uh, completely stenting the culprit lesions. That's the group who are like hanging on by a thread of a few little dodgy collaterals that are perfusing those vital ventricular walls. That's the group that probably would benefit the most from a higher blood pressure target. Are you suggesting a sub-analysis of the sub-analysis? Oh, that's hot. Let's publish that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to dance? Alex, you bring up a good point about sort of the patients who haven't actually been revascularized. And that is basically the ED population because none of our patients have actually had a stent. Correct. And so I just wonder how you would translate these findings into the non-revascularized patient. I wouldn't really change what we currently do because the vast majority of the time when a patient is rolled into the ED following cardiac arrest, having some map is positive (laughs) and uh, some attention to their resuscitation is probably the most important thing. Some fluid resuscitation and some kind of vasoactive drug and across the world, it's going to differ. And some people use dopamine in some sort of lower socioeconomic class countries. So I think as opposed to some conventional treatment, which I guess would probably consist of just uh, intermittent boluses of metaraminol to keep the blood pressure in some vaguely normal range, no invasive monitoring. Like that's probably the takeaway message here is to aggressively monitor the blood pressure and to pursue some kind of a physiologically plausible goal. I take away from this, there's a lot of confusion in scientific data because so many people are doing things poorly or trying to get more out of something they've already done. And this is what a lot of sub-analysis data does. It just puts a whole bunch more confusion into the world for us to try and then interpret in a podcast. So for me, I would say my takeaway from this is I agree with Alex. I think a really good practical study from an ED perspective is randomizing or having two groups of intervention straight to cath lab, doing nothing but reperfusion and then targeting something after that and having two groups there and then having a, we're not doing anything because there's nothing to do for now and then target two different groups. So you'd have a forearm study essentially, and it would take a long time. You need a lot of patients to to try and prove something, but that would be practical for us at our whole face because at the moment we're just trying to get them somewhere else as quickly as possible. Like we want them to go to cath lab or we want them to go to ICU and let someone else play around with them. But practically that's how we would answer this one, I think, moving forward. So maybe it's a PhD for one of you guys. Oh, yes. But that's really how you're going to answer this question. I don't think you're going to answer it trying to break down other studies and trying to determine from that, picking out patients, how this all works. Exactly. And you'd have to probably choose an endpoint. This is going to sound really dumb, but you'd have to choose an endpoint other than survival, <laughs> even though we've just pilloried the use of troponin area under the curves, because survival is actually going to be determined by a whole bunch of other stuff. So in the ICU, the intensivist will cook their prognosis soup where they add, you know, a bit of MRI, a bit of EEG, a bit of somatosensory evoked potentials and clinical assessment. And on the basis of that, they will decide whether this is a survivor or a non-survivor. And some days down the track, they and the family will reach some decision that will ultimately be the most important determinant of whether or not they're doing well. And that is really going to be governed mainly by what happens during the cardiac arrest, not necessarily much what happens after it. 
we found so few things that make a difference after a cardiac arrest, including even the temperature management and uh, you know careful attention to blood pressure and oxygenation and things. But what that endpoint would be is for you PhD candidates to decide. <laughs> the the endpoint at the moment's in vogue is cardiac MRI. So European studies are all using three day, I think thirty day and six month cardiac MRI as their basis for myocardial function, excluding everything else. <laughs> so. Depends what you want to look at, but maybe cardiac MRI, just in terms of genuine heart function, what has it done you know, over these time periods to affect the heart only, not the patient, but just the heart. I can see why it's been done. I can see the value in having to think about it. I just don't think it's add much at all to me, apart from more confusion to an already confusing world. 65 is fine, people. Just go with 65. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there is something to be said for not overcomplicating resuscitation. I think as the years have gone by with realize the importance of crisis resource management. And in general, in my experience, the more words that are spoken in resus, the worse the patient outcome is. Right. The more people are like, well, I read this paper and maybe it's 80, maybe it's 85. Or is that art line trace good? Like, oh, maybe it's not right. And then it just degenerates. So keep things simple is my usual philosophy in resus. And I think that goes against the vibe of this paper. Um, <laughs> the other point of note is I think from most of the large analysis of literature, it's pretty well understood that subgroup analysis are pretty average form of research data. So it's important to understand that when you're going to do something as practice changing as altering your endpoint targets in the context of a critical resuscitation, I think you'd need some reasonably strong evidence. At the moment, I think the only thing I ever preach is just make sure the compressions are good and someone zaps the patient in a timely manner. I mean, I think so far that's the only two things that have really shown to make any statistical difference in the context of a cardiac arrest. This paper was actually based on two papers that were looking at protecting the brain, which really I think should be all of our primary goal. That's the thing that matters the most when it comes to people surviving a cardiac arrest is actually being able to live a life that is meaningful. The results of both of those papers were neutral. Essentially, the increased MAP target didn't make a difference. What does the body of literature show, both in terms of the brain? Alex, you mentioned the kidneys earlier. Is it all just 65? Should we maybe just keep them normotensive and not think too much more? What should we be doing? To be completely honest, even that target, the map of 65, it rests on a fairly shaky foundation. So we have data from not even whole animals, but disembodied organs being perfused at different mean arterial pressures by constant flow rather than pulsatile flow to see whether they auto-regulate their blood flow best. And there is this range for most non-hypertensive people in which a map of 65 basically satisfies that. And below a map of 65, you start getting into a point where organ blood flow autoregulation becomes impaired. So 65 should really be viewed as kind of the minimum value below which your kidneys, your brain, your gut will begin to incompletely control their blood flow and therefore may potentially develop dysfunction. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will develop dysfunction. Some people will operate really well at a map of 50 because the things that you are perfusing in them are already autoregulating really well. The blood flow to the kidneys ultimately will be fine. Tissue, you know, oxygen delivery will be adequate. In other people, their ancient calcified blood vessels can't autoregulate anything usefully. And so it's a fairly linear relationship between pressure and flow for them. So the more pressure you push uh, into that circulatory system, the more flow their organs get, and they will be exquisitely sensitive to mean arterial pressure. And I have treated fairly elderly patients in whom you can see a pretty direct relationship between the level of consciousness and uh, mean arterial pressure, such that as you let it drop to 65, they become confused. And when you let it go up to 85, they return to their marbles. So that's probably where I would put that. That is probably doesn't answer the question that you originally posed. 
<laughs> there is no answer to the question you originally posed. So I think what Alex says is, is right. We're doing models to try and figure out a problem that occurs in people. So animal models, organ models, things that don't necessarily happen in human body in terms of regulation and how you know, blood flow is affected over time. The big takeaway is that a lot of these models that we run don't run forever. They run for a couple of hours. So you're talking about regulation for a couple of hours during the study and then you stop in. The second take home is that because everyone's different, there's clinical effects and then there's biomarker effects that you may be able to use to titrate your treatment or to amend your treatment if it's not right. So I think that the big thing is it's a whole of body experience, right? It's not just a, does the patient's blood pressure correlate to a troponin? It's does the patient's blood pressure correlate to level of consciousness, kidney function, gut dysfunction, lactemia, level of acidosis. So we do have all of these things that we can look at and play around with and manipulate if we need to. The problem with research is that they really want to answer one specific question whilst not doing too much else. You don't want to play too much other things because it will just add more and more confusion to your primary outcome and some of your secondary endpoints. And then you get to a point where nothing makes sense. So from my point of view, I think treat the patient. We all are clinicians. So I keep reminding people, everyone's got a brain. I was reminded as an intern once, a famous hematologist at the Pan Hospital reminded me that hypermagnesia isn't treated by giving more magnesium. It was treated by finding the cause. So what I took away from that was I think a lot of research, unfortunately, tries to pick out a specific thing to target and then only a couple of things patient-related to actually look at because if you look at the whole, it becomes too confusing. And then we are trying to now make clinical judgments on all of these things. Yep. It's really hard. That's why good research actually just does one-on-one -on -one and says, have a go, see how it affects the other parameters when you put into clinical practice. If it doesn't work, we'll move on. And that's why we're in the swings and roundabouts of fluids and sepsis forever oh, and ever and ever. Absolutely. Albumin, oh my God. So getting back to the question you originally asked, which is about the renal protection, maybe of slightly higher blood pressure targets. That was investigated. They aim for MAP of 85, achieved pretty good patient group separation. It was a big study as well. And the specific group that we're interested in are patients who have hypertension. So this is exactly the crusty calcified arteries that I was talking about. And that group, in fact, did have a slight decreased likelihood of progressing to required dialysis in the ICU. That is not to say they require dialysis lifelong or anything else that is that life-changing. It's just the additional morbidity of having to have renal replacement therapy. So in that group, less dialysis happened. Also, more AF happened. So uh, that where where that trade-off is, which of those complications would you prefer? That's kind of really what I'm asking. One's more expensive than another. So Oh, fair enough. That's true. Once a patient gets into ICU, a lot of the trajectory becomes defined both by the ICU bundle, as it were, and by the patient's pre-existing morbidity. Mark, when we see these patients in the ED, should we be aiming for a slightly higher blood pressure? Like what Alex was alluding to physiologically, it sounds like maybe a higher blood pressure might actually be protective in these people. So I have two points there. I think personally, we should be aiming for a map of 65 and potentially in older patients, based on what Alex has said, you could probably push it a little bit more. I wouldn't be totally targeting 85 in an emergency department. I would expect that they would move out of my department into Alex's realm reasonably can, can quickly. I, I do whatever I like with the blood pressure. And then he can do whatever he wants with the blood pressure. So look, this is where, again, trying to extrapolate how we use evidence in emergency medicine, because sick people need to be in places where sick people get looked after, whether it's ICU, theater, delivery suite, take your pick. In the short term, yes, it'd be reasonable for us as emergency physicians to take some of this data away and think to ourselves, in a young guy with cardiac arrest, 
probably just go for 65 in a 75 year old already highly questionable vascular status patient with PVD and previous heart attacks, push it a little bit. Yeah. Push it a little bit. But remember, like, you know, we don't want to be playing around and tinkering around too much with one aspect and forgetting about the rest of the things that are going to be happening at the same time. Exactly. So we, we forget about the massive cognitive load that is upon the shoulders of the poor, you know, evening emergency registrar. It's 10.30 at night. Got this cardiac arrest dude and eight other people and your intern doesn't know anything. You don't have time to put an arterial line to very carefully and precisely aim for a mean arterial pressure. You might be looking at an isolated set of numbers that might be well out of date on the monitor. There could be more harm in actually trying to force that patient to have have a different blood pressure. And so I don't know if this is even achievable. I think that's actually pragmatic. Certainly having been that ED registrar on evening shift last week, I can say that getting OBS on a patient is becoming increasingly difficult <laughs> these days. And so, you, you know what, that's probably the answer that we need. In the person who's come in post-STEMI and they're hypotensive and they're in cardiogenic shock clinically, is it better to use an inotrope or a vasopressor? Oh, a really interesting question. It's uh totally individualized and a case-by-case thing and probably will be determined by how good your echo skills are because noradrenaline, right, or metaraminol for that matter, are actually potentially inotropes, right, even though they don't actually have any beta-1 effects and they shouldn't really ever touch the myocardium, um, but still each of those actually would have a quite a potent inotropic effect if your blood pressure is so terrible that you can't perfuse your coronaries. So if your systolic blood pressure is, you know, 80 and diastolic is 40, your poor ancient myocardium is going to be struggling. So increasing the mean arterial pressure and diastolic pressure is actually going to push more blood into it. And potentially um, all those aforementioned thready, dodgy little collaterals will get better blood flow and you perhaps will pump better. Moreover, there is an effect that you get from increasing the afterload, which increases the end diastolic LV volume, which then has the effect of increasing contractility by the Frank Starring addition. I don't want to bore you with uh, So uh, in summary, noradrenaline and metaraminol are still a fair call in those scenarios. It is only if you put the echo probe on the patient and you are sorely disappointed by what you see there, that is when you might transition to an inotrope in which case probably the most convenient agent for you will be adrenaline because it is available, familiar, it's everywhere and does not require fiddling around. And if you ask to start a dibutamine infusion, there is potentially going to be a half an hour interval during which people are leafing through the medicines handbook, trying to figure out how to dilute it and how to administer it. And then they're doing all kinds of bizarre calculations to figure out how much five mics per kilo per minute actually is. So adrenaline, much more reliable from that perspective. So with my ultrasound hat on, everyone, please start learning how to do an echo. Don't make it up. Echo is a game changer. You know, from the start, doing bedside ultrasound in ED, probably about 10 years ago, like it's, it's a new phenomenon. People did it 10 years ago, but didn't really know what they were doing. But now much more familiar, much more accustomed. You're expected to know it as a consultant. And probably as you move your way through training a lot more, you should pick it up use it more. It's the game changer that allows us to titrate and to change some of these practices that we used to do without much knowledge. But I agree with Alex. I think, you know, if you've got a heart that's not working, it's not working because it's not getting enough blood flow, trying a vasopressor first is probably your first line. And I think we use adrenaline as both the vasopressor and an inotropic agent, a chronotropic agent, because we're familiar. Just remember that the more adrenaline you use, the worse the outcome may be as you start to get less oxygen to the heart. I think keeping it simple in short terms, use something you're familiar with. And in ED, we're familiar with adrenaline as a first line agent, and it can provide you know two effects that may have some benefit in the short term. 
And that's probably the key there is the short term. No one stays on adrenaline for more than a couple of hours. Exactly. Okay. And as soon as they get into the ICU, we typically change them over to a combination of noradrenaline and dibutamine just because there's actually some data to support that this produces better outcomes. Whereas adrenaline, the longer you stay on it, the worse your mortality seems to be with cardiogenic shock, such that at three days, it's... Um, that specific study that I'm thinking of, the name of which escapes me, is actually was abandoned because the uh, steering committee lost yes. equipoise. <laughs> and so this, this is terrible. We should stop doing this to people. That's not uncommon in intensive care, actually. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but I think that study too, when I, I remember the same study, is they left them on adrenaline for a awful long time. Mm. And yeah, so you don't days, want to yeah, do that. Days, yeah. You know, it's very well known. Days and days of adrenaline is bad. A couple of hours, there's probably no difference stick to familiar practice. That was a solid amount of adrenaline. I should probably point out. It was like 0.7 mics per kilogram. So something like 35 wow. double strength adrenaline. So we're not saying like this is yeah, under normal circumstances, you would do something. <laughs> it's not great for your myocardial oxygen consumption, especially if you're not fully revascularized. Any nuances in our post-cardiac arrest care in the ED that maybe we can look at optimizing? Swings and roundabouts of whether we go to vascularization earlier. I think we're going to get to a point where we do this again and we may be taking people who don't have ECG changes to the cath lab earlier than what we are at the moment. In terms of what we can do at the bedside right now, I think just simple optimization of very simple things. So don't overcook the goose. I think Pramod's initial words earlier were, were very simple. or you know, I'd like to be very hands-off. That's a pretty key take-home message. I think the more you try to do in this environment, sometimes the worse you make things by proxy. And so what we do every day, myself and Alex, is teach you guys how to do tomorrow. And so you learn a lot by osmosis. So the more we fiddle with things and change things and do things, the more you guys get curious and do similar things later. So I've been very well aware as a dual trainee in my early career in intensive care and then coming to ED, don't do your intensive care work in the ED too much. You know, very simple neuroprotective things are great. Very simple things to optimize blood pressure and heart rates are good. But if you start behaving like an intensivist as an emergency physician, all of a sudden you're teaching your junior staff to do things that may not be as appropriate. <laughs> and yeah, so you start, you catch yourself like measuring central venous oxygen saturation. And like that. Don't you, yeah, Hello, 1970s. That's right. Exactly. That's right. The oxygen extraction ratio measurements. Yeah, don't do these things. Um, your role is to expedite these people's diagnosis and their access to definitive treatment. And then they're going to get better from that definitive treatment or they're going to get better from a period of time recovering in the ICU, but they're not going to get better in the ED. And the interventions that you have available to you that are evidence-based are so limited, I'd probably be just getting in touch with me earlier is, is the best thing you can do. Famous last words. I think you might regret saying that, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, do you want to give us a couple of take-home points? For me, in summary of the paper, I think I came into it sort of really hopeful that it would change practice. And I think as has been thoroughly discussed, it's probably doesn't at this point. You know, anytime I'm looking at a paper, I think the first thing I look at is for a physiological basis. And I think the physiology here is pretty strong and probably in a subset of these patients with, you know, left main disease or LAD disease, there may well be a benefit in the future that can be thoroughly studied. I think unfortunately, this paper probably from a subgroup analysis and power perspective and all those sort of things hasn't got there. As Dr. Yatsev has touched on, there's been some subsequent papers that have also backed up that this sort of arbitrary cutoff in the whole population doesn't really touch it. I think in the future, there's probably a, hopefully a small subset that may be benefit from an ICU perspective, but probably not from an ED perspective. Sadly, this paper 
probably also has a number of confounding things in it. Unfortunately, it hasn't quite reached the lofty goals it probably set out to begin with, or whether they were lofty goals or just to get the paper published. Well, to get the paper published is a lofty goal. Mark Salter is going to do our first interlude here, so take it away, Mark. Okay, everyone. So this is really based upon a conversation I had with my nine-year-old daughter last night when she asked me about, how do people die, Dad? And so I obviously say, well, unfortunately, death is inevitable. We will all die at some point, and we will all die in random ways sometimes. Most people die in a bed when they're old, but some people die a much more interesting death. And so then we decided to Google it. And unfortunately, she's nine and she can read. Um, so as we both Googled it on home devices, we came to the same web page and she sat back on her iPad and I sat back on my phone and went, oh, this is a bad idea. Uh, so let's go through some of the more interesting ways people die. It starts off tame. Number one, falling out of bed. 450 people per year die falling out of bed. Number four, man killed by his own explosive device while trying to steal from a condom dispenser. And this is where it all went bad. <laughs> Then I had to explain what a condom was to a nine-year-old. <laughs> that was an interesting one. Hit by a coconut falling off a tree. Approximately 150 people a year are killed this way. And I thought to myself, I'm glad I have no palm trees at home. Man stabbed in the eye with an umbrella. Teenager taking a selfie with a loaded gun. Welcome to 2022 <laughs> is what I thought of that one. That wasn't around in 2000. We have an undertaker who was crushed by his own coffins. Poetic. Mm. Live by the sword. Number 11 is much more interesting though. Man crushed by his own partner. <laughs> Amanda liked that one. <laughs> Take home as you will. Then we had a guy who died of a lethal sherry enema. That's a thing. That's a thing. Like sherry is in the wine. Sherry is Correct. in the wine. You'd be surprised how much more wasted you can get if you completely bypass the first pass effect. In fact, there's a body of literature about toxicity from alcohol ingested or imbibed, brother, in ways that are not oral. We limit that for public knowledge. <laughs> so as we move towards the middle part of this, we have falling from the top of a lighthouse. Now, I'm not sure who falls off a lighthouse. I'm pretty certain you jump, but I didn't want to explain <laughs> that one to her. As she said to me, how would you fall off a lighthouse, Dad? You're changing the bulb. Yeah, pretty much is what I explained. Changing the bulb or walking around the outside edge, just looking around at all the ships coming in. Then we got crushed by a giant bale of hay falling on your van which I found interesting because we both, my wife and I come from rural backgrounds. and We both do bale hay once or twice a year in bad seasons. And so she said to me, I'm never doing that again. So she's already now work avoiding, which is good. A car engine bonnet can shut on your head and apparently kill you as well. So now I'm work avoiding and I'm never looking under the bottom of my car ever again and pointing to this website. You can drop weights on yourself by doing bench presses. As we get towards the end, American lawyer Clement Valindiganum shot himself in a courtroom in 1871 while showing the jury how his client's alleged murder weapon had no firing pin and couldn't have killed anyone. <laughs> Spectacular. Epic fail on his behalf. 
And the last one, and again, I thought, I thought, yes, you can do this. Death by carrot juice overdose. As a toxicologist, I had to think about this one. How can this happen? And then you sort of think, okay, he drank 10 gallons of carrot juice in 10 days. So how many liters in a gallon? So it's about two and a half to three liters, I think, from memory. It's a fairly big amount of fluid. So you imagine that much carrot juice, your vitamin A levels would skyrocket in a short period of time. And then what happens with vitamin A? It kills off organs. So your liver goes and then you go. So that has some toxicological value for me. And then I was able to wind in my toxicology knowledge to my nine-year-old on the couch last night at nine o'clock. Come here, darling. Dad's a toxicologist. Let me explain the pathophysiology of this. To which she then properly said, I'm going to bed. This is boring. <laughs> so, Pramod, that's how you have kid moments. Amazing. Looking forward to all those moments to come. So that brings us to the end of our first segment. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can email us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Everyone stay safe and we will be back in your ears soon. Now we're giving it a try I like the way you just